Like there is nothing normal, there's nothing natural, there's nothing ordinary about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Resurrection is not a rejuvenation, nor is it an awakening, nor is it even a miraculous reversal of death. Resurrection is something different. It's not the next step in the natural course of events, what we might expect or even imagine. Resurrection is something else altogether, something from beyond, something purely unnatural. Jesus was raised to a positively different kind of life. In the resurrection, a new dimension of human experience is opened up. We don't go back to what was before, but something new, something startling, something unexpected, something even beyond the limits of our imagination. Jesus has not returned to life as normal, but he has entered into, in the scripture's phrase, the newness of life. He was taken up into the inexhaustible livingness of God. Hence the meaning of resurrection. It is the unimaginable power of God's very own eternal life welling up within the lifeless and dead body of Jesus. Now because Jesus shares our human nature, he's able to fall with us into death. But because he is God, he is able to fill even death with his presence so that the grave becomes the source of life. The indestructible divine life swallows up death forever like a drop in the ocean. No, resurrection is not resuscitation. It's not rejuvenation, nor is it anything other than the human life of Jesus being taken up into the divine life. Jesus' body no longer belongs to the old order. It is a new creation. So the bottom line here in Jesus' death and resurrection is the sheer and unimaginable newness of the resurrection. As the scripture says, Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will do something new. Now, one thing's for certain. The disciples on that Easter morning were not aware of it. It was unanticipated. It was strange. And it caught them completely off guard. They were so bewildered by this new thing that God had done, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it was hardly believable to them. Now, Jesus' crucifixion, what we celebrated on Good Friday, it had sent the disciples into a tailspin. He had warned them beforehand, Jesus did, that he was going to go to the cross, and even that he would rise from the grave, but the disciples couldn't understand it at the time. At one point, the scripture says that the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of it was hidden from them. It seemed impossible, utterly impossible to them, that the one who had calmed the sea, hush, be still, and the one who had 
raise the dead, Lazarus, arise, would himself be hung on a cross. That one of this mighty power and this authority would then be humiliated and shamed by the Romans, by the chief priests, by the rulers and scribes on the cross. And yet it happened. The scriptures say the disciples fled and they looked on as their Lord was crucified and it crushed them. They weren't aware, they didn't expect that he's going to rise this third day, something's going to happen. In fact, Clopas speaks for them all when he says, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. The movement that was started in John the Baptist and then carried on in Jesus went from strength to strength. Jesus came into Jerusalem, proclaimed as king into the temple where he cleaned of all the corrupt and foul deeds of the rulers. From strength to strength, but it ended abruptly in tragedy. There in the garden, Judas with his band of Soldiers came and took Jesus away. So the disciples had hoped that this was going to be it, the redemption of the nation, but their hope was dashed to pieces. Their hope was crushed in the crucifixion of Jesus. Then came the resurrection. The disciples then still could not understand. The women at the tomb who had come to anoint Jesus' body for burial or for decomposing, they came reporting back to where the disciples were, and they were saying that the tomb was empty, and the passage says that it appeared to them as nonsense. We know people don't rise from the grave. We know these things don't happen. So don't buy the modern prejudice that everyone back then was superstitious and dumb, ready to believe anything. The scriptures tell us that even the disciples did not believe in the resurrection. That's nonsense. Even Peter going into the tomb still didn't make sense of it. What happened on that morning was so unexpected that no one could even comprehend it. Again, Clopas, him and his unnamed friend are leaving Jerusalem after Jesus has been crucified. They're walking away with their hopes disappointed. Everything that they had dreamed now collapsed. And Jesus appears suddenly beside them, resurrected. They don't know it's him, however. And he asks them, he's like, why are you guys sad? And Clopas answers, verse 24, or 22 and 24, he says, Some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying, that they had seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. But some of those um, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. They had the facts straight. A vision of angels even. He's alive. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? But facts are not faith. They still didn't understand Jesus, his resurrection didn't make sense. So there Jesus with Clopas and his unnamed friend, another disciple of Jesus Christ. How does Jesus respond when he hears their words? He says to him, now verse 25 on the screen, O foolish men, 
and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. Though to the disciples the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus was unexpected and tragic, Jesus says that it was exactly according to plan. It was necessary, he said, as he then opened the scriptures to them and explained everything that they had missed, everything that was foreshadowed, everything that was put forth about what the Christ would do. And whatever it is that he showed them, it all came to pass, exactly as the scriptures said it would. But the disciples We're underlining this again and again, because Jesus, even after this point, has to explain it one more time to them. We're underlining their ignorance. Though the climax of the divine story, it was to them a tragedy. Now, their misunderstanding, again, can be traced to Clopas' words. We were hoping that it was he who is going to redeem Israel, right? We were, we were hoping. Now, they were right. He was going to redeem them. But here's the thing. They were wrong about how he was going to do it. Right? You can hear the disappointment. We were hoping. He did come to redeem Israel. But the reason their hopes are so crushed right now is because they didn't understand the kind of salvation that Jesus had come to bring. Now, what they had expected was a quasi-military savior. Right, someone who was going to defeat their enemies in battle and then make them a great nation, the people of Israel. Now, the reality was quite different and far better. Awaiting their military savior, the disciples refused to believe that the crucifixion would happen. Up until the last moment, they expected Jesus to somehow divert the course of events, avoid the cross, and unmask himself as the triumphant Savior of Israel. Why do you think Peter drew his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and started hacking away? They were thinking, this is the kind of salvation that Jesus has come to bring. But he didn't. He didn't avoid the cross. And his death appeared to say the very opposite of what they had expected, that Israel was still within the death grip of the foreign empire, Rome. We had hoped. So, the disciples did not understand what Jesus had come to do. And they were with him. He taught them. They ate with him. They spent all of his ministry together. And they did not understand. And so it should not come as a surprise that neither do we. That sometimes we don't understand what this day is all about, and the salvation that Jesus has come to bring. We too fall short of the truth of the gospel, and we turn our faith into a rather lame list of expectations. Like them, we had hoped. This is what we expected. Jesus becomes a means to our end. We expect him to redeem our professional lives, right? To give us a good career and a good job. To bless our personal lives, to make us happy, 
to make our relationships better and our dreams a reality. And when those things don't happen, we say to ourselves, we were hoping. I trusted in this Jesus. I decided to follow him. And in fact, it turns out my life got worse, not better. We were hoping. I thought this is what salvation meant. Why are these things happening? Well, here's the good news. The cross and the empty tomb mercifully shatter our self-made expectations and they give us something far, far, far better. C.S. Lewis once said that we are half-hearted creatures. We are half-hearted creatures. And by that he means that we hope for too little. God has not promised success or prosperity or happiness, these little things, but resurrection. His intention is not to feed us on the crumbs of this age of sin and death, but to raise us up to participate in his own eternal life. We hope, right, for our little slice of the old, just our nice little comfortable, neat life, while a complete inheritance in the kingdom of God is promised to us. So that Easter day, Jesus called the disciples who expected their quasi-military savior fools. And I'm sure if he were here today, he would say the same to us. What else would we call someone who's so, or rather, someone who's prepared to settle for so little? Who's prepared to settle for so little? Because there's more beyond what our senses can experience and what science can study is a realm of being that transcends this one, the reality to which this world is but a shadow, our true home. God, in this case, shattering our expectations and giving us something better, far better, is like a good parent. Parents know how to provide for their children. If a child asks her father for bread, Jesus says, will he give her a rock? Of course not. If you, being evil, know how to give good things, how much more, Jesus says, your father who is in heaven. Yet here we are with our expectations, wanting our little slice of the pie, breaking our teeth on rocks and not bread, while the Father sets before us true drink and true bread. He wants to give us resurrection. As the scripture says, Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He says this, Why do you spend your money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? There's the disciples. We had hoped. He says, Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. So God invites us to put away our self-made expectations rocks and not bread, to receive resurrection, a share in the divine glory. We rejoice, says the Apostle Paul, in the hope 
of the glory of God. That is our hope. That is resurrection. So, in Jesus' death and resurrection, we see the kind of salvation that he's come to bring, that he's come to give us. How strange it is that Jesus saves the world through a cross. In the ancient world, the cross was a symbol of anything but salvation. It was an instrument of death and domination. It was a sign that your life is under control of this power, namely the Roman Empire. In fact, the crucifixion was so grotesque of a spectacle that it was not even appropriate to speak of it in polite society. Nevertheless, planted at the very heart of the church's faith was the crucifixion. In fact, it was a cause of embarrassment and a cause of shame to the early church. Therefore, the apostle had to encourage them, saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and neither should you be. I'm not ashamed of the cross of Christ. And again, he says in 1 Corinthians that it's the foolishness of God that he would save through a cross. He says, however, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Now, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus explained why it had to be this way, why the salvation that he'd come to accomplish would be achieved through a cross and resurrection. Now, his disciples that night had broken into an argument as to which of them was the greatest. Because Jesus told them, you're all going to betray me. And then they start arguing, and somehow it turns into uh, this comparison, and who's the best among the apostles? Who's going to stick with Jesus until the end? Now, their thoughts, of course, were on glory and distinction and honor. But Jesus corrected them, explaining what he was up to and what he was doing. Listen, Luke 22, now verse 24. He says, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. He continues, but it is not this way with you. But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest. And the leader, like the servant. And he asks, for who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? He answers the obvious question. We all know it's the one who reclines at the table. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. Greatness, according to our measure, is the amount of authority that one exercises over others. The great man is the strong man who is served rather than being served, who reclines at the table rather than the one serving the table. But Jesus says that it's not to be this way among his disciples. He says instead that the greatest must be like the youngest, like a child. And he says that the leader must be like a servant. He must be the one who goes and waits around the table So Jesus turns greatness on its head. And why? Because, he says, I am among you as the one who serves. I am among you as the one who serves. The highest one has become the lowest one, and that is greatness. The cross is about the servanthood of Jesus. 
And the Apostle Paul describes this servanthood of Jesus in terms of being poured out. Though he was equal with God, the word says, he emptied himself. Now we're accustomed to those in power and authority using it for their own personal gain, aren't we? COVID parties, cover-ups, lavish trips, and etc. The opposite, however, is true of Jesus. Rather than exploiting his power and authority, he laid it aside, the scripture says, and he embarked on a downward trajectory that took him from the absolute cosmic heights, equal to God the Father, to the lowest possible place. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So from divine glory, he descended to the cross, and he died as a servant of humanity. But for what purpose? For what purpose? Again, listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it. First, Second Corinthians. Greg, we get the slide for me. This battery's died out. Second Corinthians chapter 5, 18. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So on the cross, that horrific and terrible spectacle, God in Christ pours himself into the lowest depths of human forsakenness. He becomes all that we are so that all our suffering and estrangement and alienation from God are taken into his own heart. And what that means is that we've been reconciled to God. God has taken our place in order that he might make things right. He has become what we are in order to heal and restore us. In the ancient Israelite religion, God instituted this thing called the tabernacle, and it would later become the temple. And the whole point of the tabernacle was so that God's presence could dwell with his people and that his presence would not be a harmful presence, but that it would be a blessing. So for it to be a blessing, there had to be the cleansing of sin, there had to be purity, and there had to be cleanness. So God instituted in the tabernacle a means by which his people could approach him. Now every year, this figure, one of the main people in the Israelite nation, the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would take an animal that was sacrificed, and he'd have its blood, and then he would sprinkle it on the throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And what was symbolized by the blood of this animal being sprinkled upon the throne of God was the sin of the people, the separation of the people, the guilt of the people coming into contact with God's holy presence. And what happens there is not that God's presence is defiled, but that the sinful presence, the unclean presence, is itself purified. And then Jesus comes saying, I'm the temple, right? Walking around and doing things that would be done at the temple. And there's interesting stories where Jesus touches unclean people. Lepers, right? Who weren't even allowed to dwell within the community. And he touches them in their uncleanness. And what happens to them? They're cleaned. And what happens to Jesus? He's not defiled. In the old system, if you touched a leper or you touched a dead body, you would become unclean. But here Jesus touches the lepers and they're cleansed. So in the cross, 
what we have happening is God Himself in Christ being that sacrifice. Taking upon all the uncleanness and filth and everything that separates us from God into His own person and uniting it with the holy presence of the eternal Son. And what happens? It's erased. It's overcome forever. And from the cross, indeed the grave, having made atonement, Jesus rises into the newness of life. Up from the depths, so to speak, he brings us with him. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful image of a deep-sea diver who descends deep to grab this lost treasure and then ascends. Listen to what he says here. Uh Uh-oh. Sorry, Greg. It says, One may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanishing, rushing down through green water, warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they have come up into the light. Down below, where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. Jesus descends from the high reaches of glory to redeem humanity. And then triumphantly he returns from where he came to the right hand of the Father with us in tow. He brings us to his place. And he shares his own inheritance from the Father with us. His high priestly prayer, John 17, Father, I desire that they may be with me where I am. That they may see the glory that you have given to me. So at the heart of how scriptures describe our salvation is the language, the metaphor of exchange. Somehow, some way, there's a back and forth trade between Jesus and humanity in his death and his resurrection. He takes what is ours, and we receive what is his. Now, it's not so much a business transaction, a transfer between accounts, but more like a marriage. Say a very poor person, ridden with personal debt, marries someone of vast material resources. And by virtue of their relationship with one another, husband and wife, The debts of the one will pass to the other, and so too the riches. There is an exchange, a sharing in what the other has by virtue of this new relationship that's been founded. Jesus unites himself to sinful humanity. He takes upon our human nature, and he takes what is ours in his death, and he gives what is his In the resurrection, there is an exchange. Next slide, Greg. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in glory and love and majesty before the Father, he says, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He raises us up raises us up to the Father. He comes to the world to take its poverty, 
and he gives in return his own riches. What he is, he makes ours. He takes sin, and he gives righteousness. He takes war, and he gives peace. He takes death, and he gives life. Before each one of, the, one of, one of us, then, so long as we're willing to lay hold of it, lies a living resurrection hope. God wants for you and for your family not mere resuscitation, not mere rejuvenation, this little life that we've all planned for ourselves, more than our greatest expectations. God in Christ has promised that our human lives will be translated and transfigured into his own. God intends for you resurrection. And so now, as we turn towards celebrating the Lord's Supper, it is a sign of that promise. Through it, we remember Jesus' death and resurrection. And through it, we remember the kingdom to come. That night, Monday, Thursday, before Good Friday, in the upper room, Jesus instituted this meal for us all to celebrate and to share. And he said to the disciples, I will never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So this meal, in some way, anticipates that coming kingdom of God. We partake in these elements now, and we share in the risen Jesus' own body and blood, and also in anticipation of what's to come. We see currently in a mirror dimly, and then face to face. The partial, the Apostle Paul says, shall be done away with when the perfect comes. So we partake now in faith to receive the body and blood of our risen Lord, but then we shall partake in sight. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we shall also be revealed with him in glory. Let's pray.